0: Please stand with me and uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew five twenty-seven through 30 is what we're going to read. I do have that authoritative sound in my voice this morning, don't I? These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today, and we thank you for your strength and your wisdom and your grace. We pray, Lord, that as you speak, we would listen, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live in a sex-saturated society. What God gave as a gift to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman has often been perverted into something ugly and sinful. We're faced daily with an all-out frontal assault on our senses. We are bombarded with images, ideas, insinuations, and instigations to engage our minds through fantasy or our bodies immorally in sin. Had a propensity to run in, to instead of run from sin, and Christians are falling for it by the droves. Not ready for battle, unprepared to respond biblically, senses dulled, not confident of who they are in Christ, relying on the arm of flesh rather than the Spirit of God. That is the state of affairs in which we are today. And many feel defeated, many feel deceived and disqualified to serve God. But I want to say to you today that God has other plans for us. God had other, other plans for you than to be defeated and deceived and disqualified. Now we have seen in, in recent weeks that in Matthew 5 verses 21 through 48, Jesus deals with murder and anger He deals with sexual sin, divorce, speaking truth, retaliation, and loving others. He contrasts what God's word actually said and meant with what the people had been taught. In Matthew 5, 27 through 30, our passage for today, Jesus addresses sexual purity. He quotes the seventh commandment. He points out the ungodly nature of the lustful look, which leads to the physical act. he is concerned with the inner condition that leads to the action it's not just about avoiding doing something bad it's about having a heart that's right with God Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 18 prohibits adultery verse 27 of Matthew 5 Jesus says you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery unlawful sex outside of marriage Now, how would they have understood this command? The general opinion was that a married man in those days could have sexual adventures as long as they didn't involve a married woman that was not his wife, which meant if he did engage in sex with a married woman, not his wife, he would be violating the rights of her husband. In those days, adultery was seen primarily as theft. A double standard existed. That was the standard for men. And in, some, in many ways, it was okay for him to go and have sex with another woman as long as she wasn't married. But the women were expected to have no such relations. Chaste before marriage. Faithful after it. But God's word makes no such distinction. People of both sexes were to remain faithful. The Hebrew word for adultery, na'af, generally meant to apostatize, to express contempt for God. But the Pharisees made even the call to purity a yoke around people's necks by how they defined as well as applied it. They twisted what God meant for good. They limited the definition of adultery Claiming it only applied to an act between a married man and a married woman. They figured if they didn't do that, they were innocent. And in narrowing the definition of sexual sin, they broadened the definition of sexual purity. As long as they didn't engage in sex with another married person, they figured they were pure. They were preoccupied with punishing those who transgressed their definition. They were fixated on outward obedience, even if the heart wasn't right, even if the heart wasn't in it. But Jesus is so concerned with purity of heart. Jesus is so concerned uh, with the inner life, out of which flows the outer life. In verse 28, Jesus names lust as the issue. Imagining sex outside of marriage, Jesus says, You have heard, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, authoritatively, emphatically, the living word, speaking words of truth. And he says that lust is as bad as adultery because it originates out of the heart, out of which flow adulterous thoughts, which when given free reign, lead to the act. The heart is the center of the thought and emotion and the will. James explains the downward spiral of lust, James chapter 1, in verse 14, verse 13, it says, don't, don't say when you're tempted that you are being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, he himself does not tempt anyone, verse 14, but, it, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Lust, sin, death. The downward spiral. Lust is not a look. Lust is an intent. Jesus did not condemn incidental looking, but lustful looking, Looking with intent. Looking on purpose with impure motives. A second look. The imagination running wild. There are several words for lust in the New Testament. Uh, Pathos. It means passion. It it signifies a diseased uh, state of the soul. a, A diseased condition of our hearts. Inordinate affection. Another word is epithumia. It is active and individual desire that originates from the disease of the soul. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, we are told that because we have new life in Christ, we are to consider the members of our earthly bodies as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, that's pathos, evil desire, that's epithumia, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. First Thessalonians four and verse five puts the two words side by side, pathos epithumia, the lust of desire. Don't um, act in lustful passion. Romans one twenty six, when it says that God gave them over to degrading passions, that's epithumia. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Another word is orexis, also translated lust. It's seen in Romans one twenty seven. Men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Orexis, by the way, is an appetite that desires to possess. It's selfish and to use for oneself. Totally selfish. What lust does is it dehumanizes and devalues people and turns them into objects. Lust dehumanizes and devalues people and turns them into objects. Epithumia is the word used in Matthew 5.28. Active desire originating from a disease of the soul, sin. And by the way, in case you're wondering, in addressing lust, Jesus includes every kind of sexual immorality. Everything's covered, from lust to adultery, and everything in between. Any sexual practice that is immoral in action is immoral in look and thought as well. Now in verses 29 and 30, Jesus moves from the heart to the eyes and the hands. Your heart is the cause of your wandering eyes and your wayward hands. Eyes and hands, by the way, are amoral instruments that can be used for either good or evil and The relationship between all these body parts uh, Leads Jesus to give some very practical advice On staying pure He says if your right eye Causes you to stumble Well just gouge it out You won't have to worry about that anymore At least not about the eye part And if your right hand causes you to stumble Just cut it off Don't have to worry about your right hand hurting you anymore in fact, it led some people in history to, to take some pretty desperate measures. Uh, most notably, one of the early church fathers, Origen, had himself castrated so that he wouldn't engage. It's not what Jesus is talking about, by the way. Jesus is using hyperbole, uh, purposeful, deliberate exaggeration to make his point. Jesus was not advocating self-maiming dismemberment, but calling for rigorous, moral self-denial. Disown yourself. Disassociate with your former ways and and disassociate from forbidden ways. For example, if you decide, uh, you know, I'm not going to eat dessert. Or I'm not going to eat sugar or whatever. Then don't go to candy shops and bakeries. What are you doing? What are you doing there? Stop that. Let's say you say, I'm not going to eat steak anymore. Then don't go to a steakhouse. All right, Go to a seafood place. Jesus, what Jesus was advocating here is the, is the fruit of the spirit of self-control. Now the right eye in those days was a very significant member of the body. I think we're all pretty much attached to ours, right? The right eye was thought of as especially valuable, though. A warrior would be severely handicapped if he lacked sight in the right eye. Josephus spoke of kings gouging out the right eyes have captured enemies. Since the left eye was covered by the shield, this would render them useless for war. Now the right hand, sorry lefties, the right hand is favored by most people. The left hand in Eastern cultures was and still is used for personal hygiene purposes. The left finger was used for cursing someone. The right was used for blessing. Therefore, if your right hand is involved in unseemly practices, in stealing or in giving bribes, let's say, it is useless. Not living up to its potential for good. Don't make yourself useless to God by disqualifying yourself for service by engaging in illicit and idolatrous activities. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus is saying stay away from things that that hinder your relationship with him. Make a decisive, permanent break from the cause of sin. Better to lose one part than for the whole body to be destroyed. Better to limit one aspect of your life than to ruin your whole life. Take whatever measures it, it will take to control natural passions that tend to flare out of control take yourself out of the situation do whatever it takes the remedy is to separate yourself from the desire and not to use your senses or your body to pursue the object of desire see the only way to uh, to deal with the problem Jesus says is at the beginning at the onset before it is full blown Job. Verse, uh, chapter 31 and, and verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a virgin? He then speaks of his heart. He says, If my heart has been enticed, it happens. I think now would be a good time to say a word about clothing for everyone involved. Make sure it's modest. By the way, make sure it's not enticing. Clothing is not for directing attention to yourself. It is for covering your body. Emphasis on covering. Now would probably be a good time to mention pornography. Since many are trapped by it today. Now would be a good time to mention homosexuality. And really, you could say any other sex addiction that is, it is common to mankind, think with me for a moment, what do addicts do? What do addicts do? Addicts set aside everything in life for their drug. They become slaves. You see, sexual sin degrades people from, from human beings into sex objects. We are not animals. We are are human beings made in the image of God to to reflect His glory. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus two times mentions Gehenna, a place of idolatry in earlier days, a, a place of burning and refuse in His day, a recognized example of a despised place in those days. Here, heaven is implied and hell is to be avoided. Heaven being a place of fellowship with God and hell being a place of separation. Knowing that every person will spend eternity in one place or the other. In one state or the other. I think of the Lord's Prayer. I think of the Lord's Prayer where we we pray... uh, our Father, and then we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are weak, you are strong, deliver us from evil. And, and yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory. Think about how we pray that. And then many times we'll run right to the very thing we we pray against. Gehenna. That was where useless things were thrown. Describes the place of final judgment. That those who continue in sin show their true identity. Romans 8 verse 6 tells us that the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. Romans 8 13 says that if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. So allow God to separate you from your sin, or your sin will separate you from God. It'll cause a break. It'll cause a break in fellowship, it'll cause a break in joy. It'll cause a break in peace and hope. It'll cause a spin. It'll cause vertigo spiritually. How about Proverbs chapter 7? Proverbs chapter 7. In sin's downward spiral, on opposite ends of the spectrum lie wisdom and folly. And Proverbs 7 deals with not going after a harlot. Not going after a prostitute. And it recounts the, it recounts the whole situation. And he follows after. And, and you see in verse 23 that after he follows... And goes where he knows he should not go. In better days he would have resisted. But in this moment he goes. In verse 23 it says until an arrow pierces through his liver. You probably won't survive that. And as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. It will cost him his life. So listen. Listen. Pay attention. Don't let your heart turn aside. Don't stray into those paths. Many are the victims that she has cast down. Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, verse 27, descending to the chambers of death. Don't go there. You know what's interesting about lust? The nature of lust is that it always involves an exchange of what is real for a cheap imitation. For a counterfeit. I like, the way, I like the way Bonhoeffer put it. Adherence to Jesus allows no free reign to desire unless it's accompanied by love. Adherence to Jesus allows no free reign to desire unless it's accompanied by love. But a will dominated by lust shows we lack faith in Jesus. See, for believers, Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. He has revealed the true intent and meaning of the law. By the way, summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. The Pharisees twisted it to say what they wanted it to say and what would keep the people under their thumb. Jesus set the law free from the Pharisees and their stranglehold and came to, to set those captives to sin free. He made good on his promise. Jesus gave uh, himself in exchange for the filthy rags of our own false righteousness. The truly righteous, God's word says, shall live by faith, not by sight. So in light of that, in light of, and in light of our hope of heaven, May all believers live in victory, not defeat. Because Becoming humbly consistent in staying sexually pure. How can this come about? Well, first of all, you've got to determine your course of action. You've got to determine where you're headed. And do not deviate from it. Let nothing deter you from your pursuit. Have your senses trained to discern between good and evil. Romans 6, verse 12 says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you may obey its lusts. So that would mean saying no to fantasies and vain imaginings and planning sin out. It would mean saying yes to exercising self-control. It's the idea of running from sin. It's the idea of resisting sin. It's the idea of repenting of sin. To be tempted, by the way, is not to sin. So you're tempted. Well, don't keep going there, though. That is sin. If we are to withstand the forceful temptations that come our way, we cannot invite them any over any longer for a play date. We can't coddle them. We must develop and practice a chastened view of abstinence. Not physical only, but mental as well in thought as well as deed again the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace 2nd Timothy 2.22 says flee youthful lusts look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 in our dead condition when those Apart from Christ, we're dead in trespasses and sins. In which we formerly walk, those who are in Christ, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the course of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 22. We are instructed, because we did not learn Christ in the way of sin, it says if you've heard Christ, and if you've been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, then in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So lay the old things aside, but you've got to put something else on because something will fill the vacuum. Lay the old things aside, but you've got to put something else on because something will fill the void. And if you're addicted, you need help to break the addictions. You can't do that on your own. So first you've got to determine your course of action, which direction are you going? And secondly, you've got to find a reliable network of support, a reliable network of support. In Colossians 3.16 it tells us to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Yes you need an internal compass, you need a direction going Godward, you've got to make personal decisions. No one can make them for you, but others can either help you towards or hinder you from your goal. I think about uh, the campaigns that are uh, for, to, we teach our young kids to, to wait until marriage to have sex. Or true love waits, or the, before that it was why wait, and, and you know what? Many of those have not worked. All these kids signing on saying, I'm going to wait. Then they break that, that promise or whatever you want to call it. Virginity pre- pledges, purity covenants, good things. You need to know what direction you're headed. But here's what I'll say about this don't tell your enemies all your secrets. Be careful who you tell your intentions to, because some will take that as a way to, a challenge. To get you to trip up they'll go after you limit it to your family and friends wisdom does not show her treasure to just anyone so don't divulge your secrets to those who aren't sympathetic to the cause of christ don't cast your pearls before swine how about families we, we alerted parents to the topic of this sermon today to protect the innocence and purity of our kids. Interestingly, though, there are kids that have heard the opposite, so you probably should have them in here to straighten a few things out. Let them hear the truth rather than the lies they have already heard. There is wisdom in that. But let's exercise that same wisdom when we send them out. We send our young people out daily into the world, let's get them ready for battle. Let's get them ready and prepared to respond biblically. Let's not just hope they got it. Equip them to engage the culture as salt and light. To conscientiously object to influences certain to conform them to their image if they don't resist. And that will take purposeful, systematic teaching on a daily basis by parents. I encourage you to invest time to read and to explain and to apply God's Word in your home daily. Gather and pray together. Show how it relates to what they are seeing and hearing on a daily basis. Full immersion in the culture ruins us. Total isolation from the culture fails. But redemptive interaction with the culture, in it but not of it, works. So seek for redemptive interaction. Men and women. Every man, every woman needs encouragement and accountability. Men with men, women with women, opening up the word of God, praying, uh, praying for one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another. So you've got to define a reliable network of support if you're going to be sexually pure. And the last thing is you've got to direct your focus to God to aim to please Him In fact, go back with me to Colossians 3, about the idea of being raised up with Christ, positionally raised with Christ, those who are in Christ, those who are believers. It says in in verse 1, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the earthly members of your body as dead to immorality and impurity and lust and so on. That our minds would not be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That our minds would dwell on those things that are pure, and excellent, and right, and true, and lovely, and admirable, and noble. You know, Jesus basically is saying that wrong thinking leads to wrong action. Right thinking leads to right action. It is amazing. It is amazing when you are fully engaged in serving God what you don't think about. Or when you do think about it, you keep going in that direction, and it dissipates. It is amazing, because if you leave the void open, something will fill it. So we've got to fill ourselves and keep ourselves always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast and immovable. Matthew five twenty-seven through 30, it looks back to Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the innocent in heart. Blessed are those with no guile in their heart because they will see God. See, we will either gratify ourselves or we will glorify God. You cannot do both at the same time. So we must lay aside the sin that entangles us. We must run with endurance the race that is set before us. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Believe Jesus, conscious of his presence, relying on an unseen savior to orient and direct our seen lives. That's why we need the objective word of God, applied by the spirit of God as our compass. Let me make it really simple. You could also just do this. You could just say, stop that. Don't do that. Don't look at that. Don't touch that. You could do that too. That works. Or you could say, stop the thing before that, that led you to do that. But above and beyond, it's above and beyond. It's not just about stopping things or not doing things. We've got to grasp the ultimate uh, good behind these verses, or or we'll focus on a Pharisaical sin management system, and we will uh, just try hard to maintain good behavior. That's what the Pharisees did. Their hearts weren't right. The Pharisees were preoccupied with what to do when someone committed adultery. They were preoccupied with punishment. Jesus, on the other hand, was preoccupied with making people pure and holy. Far different. They were focused on punishment. Jesus, on the cure. See, Jesus never condemned people, never excused sin, and never made people feel two inches tall either. He gave hope, he restored dignity. On the other hand, the super smug Pharisees were hypercritical of everyone else, they forgot mercy. In fact, one day, it's, it's recorded, by the way, in, in John chapter 8, one day, They brought to Jesus a woman who had been caught in adultery. In fact, uh, John chapter 8 and verse 1. Jesus had gone up to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came to the temple. And the people were streaming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. Very similar to the start of the Sermon on the Mount. But then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and they set her in the very center of the court. Humiliated her. Despising her. And and they said to Jesus, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act of... Someone had too much time on their hands. I don't know, by the way, where was the man? But this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And then they say in verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Were they mocking him? Surely they had heard him say, you have heard, but I say to you. Leviticus 20 verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22 demanded her death. They were right. But verse 6 tells us they were testing him. They were saying this to test him so that they could have grounds to accuse him. They didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about purity of heart. They cared about consequences. They cared about punishment. So what did Jesus do? Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. People have I've wondered, was he writing the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees down? Was he writing all the things they had done and broken? We don't know. But he wrote with his finger on the ground. They kept asking. So he stands back up and, and he says, He who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So then he started writing on the ground again. He stoops down again and writes on the ground. They heard what Jesus said, and one by one, beginning with the oldest, by the way, they started leaving. And finally, it was just Jesus and this lady. The law said she must die. And Jesus stands up and, and asks, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? And Jesus says, no one, Lord. And Jesus, uh, she, excuse me, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And then Jesus dives in to these words, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus proclaims liberty two captives and sets the prisoners free so there's this lady despised, ostracized a loser with no chance in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus, Jesus spoke grace and peace and hope not condemnation forgiveness not hell Jesus said neither do I condemn you go and sin no more and he did it for his glory What do you think she did? See, it is all about the glory of God. The gospel affecting every aspect of our lives. Because Jesus stooped down and came to earth and died for us, we could rise up and praise him. It's about the glory of God, and it's about the the gospel restoring what sin destroys. It leads us to focus not on ourselves and our failings. It leads us to focus on Jesus and his victory. The gospel centers on a man dying for us while we were his enemies. Jesus makes sinful people holy and motivates them to serve him out of love. But in the final analysis it comes down to desire. It comes down to desire. In Matthew 5:27 through 30, Jesus is talking about desire gone wrong. We miss Jesus point when we think desire is bad. Epithumia can be used for good or evil. Jesus, in the upper room, Luke 22 and verse 15, says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired, Epithumia, to eat this Passover with you. Literally, he says, with desire I have desired. Paul said, in 1 Timothy 3.1, that aspiring Epithumia to lead the church is honorable. Philippians 1.23, Paul says he desired Epithumia to be with Jesus. Desire is not wrong. Sinful desires are wrong. You don't need to shut down desire. God wants you to desire good things. C.S. Lewis wrote in in his book, The Weight of Glory, we're to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. Nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels. It seems our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Lewis followed that up in his book, The Great Divorce. In fact, Jeff Cook in his book, Seven, retells Lewis's story in a shorter version. It's all about a, a man standing between heaven and hell with a little red lizard On his shoulder. And the lizard's words captivate the man. And bring him pleasure. And yet they leave him only oily, weak, and chained to a life he hates. The lizard represents lust. And whispers all kinds of soul-destroying things into the man's mind. An angel confronts the man. And ask for permission to kill the lizard. The man at first is hopeful and then asks if the lizard's death will hurt him. The angel nods, and this is not good. The man doesn't want the pain. He begins to put forth excuse after excuse. The lizard makes its plea as well, bargaining for its life, screaming to be spared. The angel comes back with the same question. May I kill it? May I kill it? And finally, the man concedes. And the sword falls quickly on the lust lizard. But there's a twist. There's a twist. The lizard doesn't die, it mutates. It begins growing into a living, energetic stallion. The horse stands strong and regal, and the man, formerly in bondage, is transformed as he mounts the back of the stallion and rides off toward a great light. Now strengthened and fully alive, he travels to the place of joy, to the mountains where he may see the face of God. And Lewis closes with this what is a lizard compared to a stallion lust is a poor weak, whimpering whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed it was for freedom that Christ set us free Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. They shall see him someday in heaven and they shall see him at work in their life now. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in our time of need because we need you and there is no one else that has words of life but you. And Lord, we, we lay ourselves at your feet. We do want to see you, Lord. We pray in Jesus. Amen.